0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. The Leafs have signed Austin Matthews to a four-year deal. As a Boston fan, what is for dinner?
0: Here, Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Another jam-packed show. Uh, lots going on, but not really uh, when you think about it. Remember on Friday or last week we were talking about um, we actually had Stephen Lecce on talking about how the uh, uh, the, the Ontario government had, had come to some sort of deal with the teachers and it was a, a great day and and everybody thought, "My goodness, this is like the second week, uh, two weeks left of school, and we still and we got a deal already. Uh, amazing!" And now we're not sure because some of them have. Um, uh, uh, I don't know what's going on. To be honest, so <laughs> I'll stop tap dancing. But Stephen Lecce, the education minister, does, and we're going to have him on at uh, five twenty this afternoon to try to. Uh, try to decode all of this and what it means uh, moving forward. All right. It is the last unofficial week of the summer of 23 as we head into uh, Labor Day weekend. Uh, and if you're traveling and you're going out and about and, you know, uh, remember, during the pandemic, everybody trying to get a passport, And even though the federal government is 30 percent more bloated than it was uh, before all of this. um People were still having a hard time getting a passport. Well, now the new passports, apparently, uh, they're not very good. So, like, if you have them in your pocket or they – and, you know, if, you, if you've got a passport, it's pretty durable. It's like a, a dollar bill. It's, you know, good luck trying to destroy it. It seems to go through anything. But I guess with the heat and the humidity, it's not uh, reacting well. I guess that um, the passport isn't designed for clean Canadian climate. I don't know. But it's curling up and sort of coming apart. So uh, some are complaining that the new passport has left them uh, wondering, what the heck do I do with this? We'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well. Another jam-packed show. Hope you hang around for it. Um, you know, there's more chatter about a new variant of, of COVID-19, which is, you know, it's fall, and we're going to get, you know, cold and flu season is, uh, is a few weeks away. Obviously, the kids getting back to school, they're germ magnets. Um, and you know, I don't think I was ever sick until I had young kids. Then every September, my wife and I got sick anyway. Uh, so flu shots, COVID shots, boosters, all that sort of thing, chatter of that, but also, which is kind of weird. Uh, China now has uh, stopped, uh, their, uh, COVID-19 screening when uh, people come in and I guess there's a lot of tourists going to China. Personally, I'd love to see China. I just scared I wouldn't get back out. Uh, but anyway, so uh, and, and, and again, just shows you how far behind uh, China, the rest of the world uh, or how behind the, uh, China is from the rest of the world who have dropped, uh, you know, COVID protocols long ago. Uh, but then again, China sort of took a different route, uh, very uh, inefficient vaccine, even though they stole it from Canada. Uh, it didn't work out well for them. And instead, they did the, just the massive lockdown thing which uh, as you remember um when we were all getting out of it they were still having issues and uh, it's really affected their economy so we're going to talk uh, two different uh, two different uh, angles of covid the new uh, strain which is coming on and i don't really uh, you know honestly i don't i haven't heard anything for anybody to be Uh, worried about this in any way other than, of course, if you're in one of the vulnerable groups like a lot of people are, especially the older people populations with the flu shots and such. So uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on uh, moments from now, actually, in in exactly where we are as we head into this fall. All right. Also going to get Eric Thomas in here from Raceline Radio uh, here in the first hour. Uh, An amazing, an amazing crash on um, in the NASCAR series over the course of the the weekend Friday, this was the Xfinity series. And it's unbelievable how uh this car barrel rolled, Lord knows how many times. Uh even when it would go up into the air, I think it went around five or six times on its series of rolls. So an unbelievable uh, situation that this race driver found himself in. And obviously the protection of the cars and those uh, and and the roll cage that's around him saved his life, but just a phenomenal clip. If you haven't seen it yet, we'll talk to Eric Thomas about that uh, coming up a little later on. Also over the weekend, we learned that Bob Barker has died. I guess the price was right. I've been waiting to use that joke all weekend but a um, uh, Bob Barker at the A, I know, is it a drum? You had a rim shot there? Uh, over the weekend, uh, Bob Barker, 99 years of age. I remember this guy on an old show called Truth or Consequences long before uh, The Price is Right. We're going to talk to uh, Bill Brio about him and, uh, and his long and storied career as Bob Barker has passed away over the course of the weekend. 99 years old. Unbelievable. Also coming up, we'll talk to Brian J. Karam, our uh, White House correspondent. Well, not ours, but he is, so we get to jump on that and uh, tell us what is going on in the show that is uh, Donald Trump as that continues and Ted McMeekin is going to be joining us Councillor Ward 15, City of Hamilton talking about uh, the hats, tiny cabins and the encampment uh, encampment solutions and such and obviously a very difficult situation that uh, the city is in when it comes to uh, housing and, and tent encampments and what have you. Uh, obviously not an easy solution. We'll have that discussion coming coming up a little later on as well. Heading back into, uh, back to school and in and, and fall and such, it's the last week of the summer, unofficial week of the summer of 2023. And of course, Labor Day and things get all back to normal. We know that when we head back, uh, obviously uh, flu season, uh, respiratory viruses, what have you, those all start to rear their ugly heads again as uh, everybody gets back together. Some chatter about a variant, let's talk about that. And also uh, where China is in its progress, Thomas Tenke with us, professor, School of Occupation and Public uh, School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University, and here now, Thomas. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
2: Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me back.
0: Boy, Thomas, it seemed like for a while there, you were on like every other day and you and a whole pile of other experts, uh, in your field. It hasn't, it has been a while, which is a good thing. Honestly, it, it don't take it personally, Thomas, but just, uh, <laughs> uh give us a bit of, a, a, an update because we are hearing the words COVID-19 again and a new variant as we come into fall. Uh, not hearing a lot about it, but it is there. What can you tell us? What sort of update?
2: Yeah sure thanks Scott. Uh, yeah so there is a, a new variant that's starting to take over becoming the more dominant variant that's it's sort of known by the code of EG5 and 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 what you know I think what we've talked about before is how that the 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 virus it, it's purpose in life is to sort of keep surviving and the way it keeps surviving is to keep mutating in a way that helps it be trans, more transmissible and so so what we're seeing with this you know this latest variant is that it is becoming it's it's the one that's being more easily transmitted than the other variants and so it be, and because of that it becomes more dominant uh at this stage there's no indication that it's it's any more serious than what we've what we've had uh the, the the previous more dominant variant so and that's that's all you know what's what's expected and so so you know but in terms of trends um you know we're we're really coming off a reasonably low base in comparison to what we've had in the past but uh there there's some you know, because we're not doing the same sort of level of testing, and uh, what mm-hmm. you know, we have to sort of look at the various measures altogether, and and they're all starting to indicate a bit of an upward trend. And so, you know, what I'd expect is that, uh, as I said in your intro, there the, uh, you know, with uh, re- coming into respiratory virus season, you know, we it, we you know we, we'd expect an uh, you know a, an increasing trend across the board uh for, for, for COVID, but then also, you know, an uptake for influenza or an RSV too. So so it's just that aspect of yes, respiratory viruses and what, you know, we need to just be careful and uh, in or cautious of of, you know, if we are sick to stay home, you know, not to be in contact with others as much as possible and that sort of thing.
0: And we remember in the pre-COVID world that uh, many would get a flu shot going into the fall. What do we do this year? Is there a flu slash booster, uh, COVID booster uh, combo of any way? What, what What is the recommendation heading into fall?
2: Yeah. So, well, I think uh, you know definitely there's the the flu, the you know whatever the latest uh, flu shot is. That that's definitely a, a a good thing if you know for the for the general community in terms of covid and covid boosters in the fall they they're looking at introducing a a new booster that is is based on the on a recent uh variant of you know omicron what was the you know the name that we got to to know about a lot, lot recently and so so it, it's not the same variant as now is starting to come into play but it's 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 pretty close and so so if if uh you know particularly if you're at high risk and you know maybe el- elderly or have underlying health conditions. I think that uh, looking at getting that the the, the COVID vo- booster that comes out in the fall would be a would be a good option. But in terms of the kids, I, I suppose I'm not sure. It, you know, it's a different different risk profile yeah. versus you know someone who's at high risk because of being elderly or or underlying health conditions.
0: All right. We remember uh, lots of different parts of the world went at this in different directions as it did virtually hit uh, right the way across the world. China. Uh, not very uh, successful with vaccination, however, uh, was really into uh, quarantining and, and locking people down, per se. Now just releasing or opening up uh, protocol in China. So if tourists want to come there from other parts of the world, they don't have to go through the protocol testing anymore. What does that say of where they are and and how you look at this overview of this over the last three years or so?
2: Yeah, it yeah, I think definitely, you know, what's happening in China is 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 very interesting. You know, they have had, you know, very severe lockdowns for for extended periods of time and now they're really, you know, opening up and I think that opening up is 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 a lot to do with from an economic perspective, uh more in some ways more than a public health perspective. My sense is that they've sort of come to the come to the point where they so they can't afford not to be open again and so uh you know, if from a public health perspective, broadly, you know, we're we're at sort of lower levels ar- ar- around the world in terms of you know what we're seeing in Canada and in other countries, and so so I suppose they're just sort of feeling well, it, it's sort of uh, at a level that they can start opening up again, and 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 they they really need to. So so I think that again, you know, COVID, what we've seen is very you know it's a political issue, it's an economic issue, it's a, as mm. well as being a Public health issues. So, so I think that it's that sort of balancing all of those aspects.
0: So fascinating, Thomas. Because obviously, over the course of this, we talked about vaccination and and when once they were finally available and such. And, um, and now we're hearing like last week or the week before that, you know, about 75% of the community is immune because of so many people had had it over the last wave or such. Whereas when they were locking everybody down in China, they weren't really building up immunity. So when they opened that up, boom, uh, there was almost like a backdraft came in and, and reinfected.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, so definitely, I th- think, you know, uh, yeah. I, I agree with you in in what you what you're describing there and and but you know in terms of China it, it is still hard to really know exactly what's going on uh, mm. and so so I think uh, but but you know broadly you know there, I think there's there's uh, a reasonably high level of immunity in, in, within the community but but I'd expect that that's going to you know in some ways in terms of the the latest variant you you know you're you're not going to have the same level of protection and so that's where you know having the these new boosters will give you that added bonus but but you know in Canada we've seen that you know quite a drop off from the the first two doses to then the mm. the next two boosters and so so you know i think it's uh you know it's very much a judgment call uh in terms of risk and, and risk profile so definitely whoever's at at high risk i think uh they should really consider you know keeping up with the boosters but for for everyone else uh, looking at the you know the other measures that we've talked about uh, quite often in terms of uh, you know you know potentially mask wearing and and the and the other you know the distancing and, and the like.
0: All right, uh, Thomas Ten with us, professor of School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. Keep your eyes peeled for a COVID booster coming this fall. Thomas, as always, thanks for the time. Be well
2: uh thanks very much, Scott. Have a great day. Three Fords
3: have separated themselves. A big push coming now for Harvick. Oh, and around goes a couple guard. Priest upside down. He's barrel rolling through the grass. Ryan Priest. upside down. in the infield.
0: I, I lost count. i You literally have to d- slow it down and count how many times he went around. Uh, you know, usually when you're doing a barrel roll, the car has contact with the ground. This car would go in the air and then do, I don't know, three or four flips in the air before it even came back down again. It was just an unbelievable uh, accident to see. And again, just a testament to how safe these vehicles are that uh, Ryan Preece, uh says on social media. I'm coming back. Uh, bring in uh, Eric Thomas, the expert on all of this, Raceline Radio Network. You can hear right here Sunday nights on CHML. He is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
4: Oh, good, Scooter. Always good to be on. And uh, the main thing is that uh, Brian Priest is okay. It was, uh, it certainly was a spectacular crash, and you know the the, the safety innovations they have put in these cars, which really started back with Bobby Allison in 1987, crashing into the fence at Talladega. Yeah, when They decided that having these big 3,500-pound stock cars going 200 miles an hour, when they leave the ground and there's no more resistance,
5: there's no more rolling drag,
4: it's amazing how a great big piece of steel like that can fly like a piece of paper. When when Bobby had his crash into the fence, which you know was, was an amazing thing to see, that's when things started to change, and there's a whole list of, of crashes now. And then when you look in, inside the car, and every time they go into an in-car shot, if you didn't know he was sitting inside of a stock car, you'd almost say this was it looks like an IndyCar cockpit. They've got full-face helmets. They've got Hans devices that prevent their heads from snapping forward. They've got all that extra padding around the helmet. They really can't move there. They're in a six-point harness that holds them in, and they're moved more towards the middle of the car. There's more protection on the sides of the car since all these accidents, starting with Bobby back in the 1980s is the reason why you saw a spectacular crash and the driver get out, walk, get observed in the hospital, have nothing more serious than a bad case of race and rheumatism because he's damn stiff after you bang around like that. We call it race and rheumatism. But other than that, he's fine, not even a concussion, and he walked away from it. So it's a, it's a testament to the safety development with these cars.
0: Uh, that being said, um, you know, whether it's um, uh, wings or flaps or whatever, uh, there, yeah. there's lots of innovations that were done to these cars to try to keep them on the ground. Are you surprised that one went airborne when it, when it went sideways the way it did?
4: Well, yeah, the only thing was is that you're, you're down near the end of the race at Daytona, and, of course, that's a super speedway, and you've got speeds way way up over 190, just a little bit lower than 200 miles an hour. When you get punted from behind, like yeah. we did from Eric Jones, that's going to kick the car up into the air and no flaps on it or anything that's designed to stall the air to drop and break the lift of the cars is what those those flaps are supposed to do. It doesn't matter, man. If a car is up in the air and it's traveling forward, as soon as you get rid of the friction yeah. or the arrow drag on the ground, Scott, it's gonna fly like a piece of paper or kite, as we call it. And that's the situation while you saw, you know, priests get up in the air and barrel roll probably about ten times. That was the one thing that kind of gets me though, and I've been arguing with some some of these so-called auto racing journalists on the air, is is that I'm glad that Priest is okay. Yeah, it was a spectacular accident. But it is by far not the most severe or alarming accident we have seen. I've seen people describe this as worst crash in NASCAR history, the worst no. crash that I've ever seen. There are, you know, go back to Rusty Wallace in the 90s and him getting up in the air. Ryan Newman, three years ago at Daytona, yeah, getting up yeah. in the air. Michael Waltrip, that Bristol crash in 90, when, when, when it hit the gap in the wall. Jeff Beardyne's yeah. truck crash. Remember remember Jeff Beardyne's yep, yep. truck crash in 2000 at Daytona? Yep. And, and that car was just a big ball of metal, and he survived that, too. So I'm not, I'm not trying to compare the severity of these things, but, you know, let's not overreact when, when you see a spectacular crash. You may be a Johnny-come-lately, and you've never seen anything like that spectacular, but do yeah. a little more research, you guys. There are some crashes out there, and a testament, again, to the safety of these cars with these drivers have survived much more severe crashes
6: in the world. And
0: it's interesting because, and, and you know, nothing against the person that sent me the email because, you, you know, usually non-fans, but someone sent me an email and <laughs> said, well, you know, well, isn't this why people watch NASCAR? Isn't that why no. you guys watch this to see these accidents? It's like, no, you know who says that? People who are non-fans and exactly. don't understand the sport. They're the ones yeah. that say that, you know, people just watch this for the accidents. No, that's not we were, why you yeah, watch. No, no, no.
4: We, we Scott, we were arguing that, that baloney back in the 50s. You yeah, know, when we yeah, first started yeah. getting interested in the show and Raceline line radios, but on the air 31 years, I don't even debate that with anybody anymore. Yeah. That one. And, you know, the, these drivers are not athletes. I don't bother wasting yeah, my time yeah. to open my mouth to even debate that one. So, no, no, I'm totally on board with you there.
0: All right. So what I was really surprised at once I started watching this and I didn't see the race, I saw the highlights afterwards, was how yeah. flat the bottom of the car is i mean yeah. it you you t- you you said the comparison to indycar or even yeah. an f1 how they have that completely fat uh, flat and closed in bottom which yeah. you know i didn't realize how sealed the bottom of the car is but i'm wondering if that's uh you know an issue if that's one of the reasons it, it took off like a kite
4: well yeah yeah well you- Maybe, but what you're working with there with the flat bottom of the car is, is that you're trying to reduce the amount of aerodynamic drag, which slows yeah. the car down, and that's why you have things like exhaust pipes that are up inside and are channeled outside the of uh, the side of the car, as opposed to the pipes that you see on your no. passenger car yeah. and everything else. So, you know, I don't know whether that contributes to it or not, but that's just part of. Well, let's remember something, Scott: is that these are race cars, yeah. and you are trying to design them. And power them to go faster than the other guy to beat him to the finish line. They're not supposed to get up in the air, but they do every once in a while. And also, too, let's remember, you know, in some of those other crashes that I mentioned, you had cars getting up into the fence. And what you yeah. never want is that cars start to go
0: into the crowd. Yeah.
4: Well, exactly, because when that, that has happened before, and we don't ever want that to happen again. So, you know, I don't know whether that contributes to it or not. Is that these things are not designed to fly? Quite obviously, <laughs> they're, they're I don't know, but, the
0: but they do quite well once they get up there. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, sure the will, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will learn something from this. Yeah, uh, yeah. What, what do you think going to what do you think they'll learn from this? Any idea? Well,
4: they'll, they'll take the car back to the R&D center and have a look at it. But I don't I don't know. I mean, that's the simple fact that he got out of that thing. And the car was pretty much intact after it bounced around and rolled and, and pitched around as violently and as many times as it did. You know, if you look back at some of those other crashes that I mentioned, the cars are wadded up and there's bits flying in. The bottom end gets ripped out and it doesn't even look like a race car when it's done. The fact that Preece's car remained intact pretty much told you that all the, uh, the engineering intricacies of the safety aspects of these cars held true. He wasn't ejected. He didn't come out of anything. His head didn't snap forward. The engine stayed inside there. The undercarriage of the car didn't come flying off. The wheels didn't come flying off. So I don't know what they're going to learn from it other than, you know, we're on the right track in yeah. terms of safety, right? The one thing, and let me leave you with this, and, and, you know, you got two more questions, and that's fine. But, you know, one of the neat things about this is, it's human nature, when you're hurtling down, upside down, and flying around in the air, what's the first thing you do when you drive and you wanted to stop, you hit the brakes, But the brakes aren't going to help you if the wheels aren't on the ground. I can tell you now that Priest had both of his feet on the brake pedal trying to stop the car, but it ain't going to stop the car, Ryan, because your wheels aren't
6: on the ground. And they say say that, that,
0: yeah. And and when they say when you get airborne like that, because I mean, you just the the violence, the you know, the noise, the sparks, whatever. But then once you hit the air, it's quiet. You're sailing. It's like there's nothing. You're just floating.
4: Well yeah with the lights especially because this is at night at Daytona in the Cup race and because all the lights there you you lose reference to the horizon but
0: oh, yeah. it seems
4: you know it seems a long time that car but you know what to Ryan inside that it happens so fast you know and you go oh I think I was upside down for a while there yeah but you were and the car was tumbling like a tumbleweed so you know uh yeah it's it's it. we see these accidents every once in a while Everybody gets alarmed if they've never seen them before, but calm down, everybody. These cars are amazingly safe in terms of protecting the driver at the high velocity. Comparing, you know, just to what the races were like back, and we mentioned Bobby Allison's crash in the, in the 80s. Cars going so fast, the protection now of the track with the fencing and inside the car is unbelievably advanced compared to what it used to be, and that's the reason why Ryan is still here.
0: Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio, and you can hear every Sunday night right here on CHML talking about uh, this past weekend's Daytona crash with Ryan Priest. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
4: Always good. always good fun, Scoot. We'll talk to you next time, pal.
0: Sad news over the weekend. Uh, we learned that Bob Barker had passed away, age 99. We can only hope 99. Uh, unbelievable. And of course had a great run as host of the prices, right? Some old people might even remember his old game show, truth or consequences to talk more about all of this. Let's bring in bill Brio, TV critic and author. And I believe he's in Ottawa at the children's television shows exhibit at the Canadian museum of history. Bill Brio here now, bill, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
3: I, I am for sure. Scott, we're just going by the parliament buildings actually. And, uh, Yeah, and Bob Barker, here's the thing. He dies at 99, so uh, he he managed to get closest to 100 without going over.
0: (laughs) Kind of ironic, right? See, I was waiting all weekend to say, you know, Bob Barker passed away at the age of 99. I guess the price was right. So there you go. Look at you. (laughs) You, You're even digging it one step better. So uh, what an incredible career. How many years was he on Price is Right?
3: He hosted for uh, 35 years. Uh, I think from uh, the early 70s, 72 to uh, 19, oh, I'm sorry, uh, from, yeah, the 70s till 2006. So, um, and of course, we've got uh, Drew Carey is hosted for the last 16 years as his successor.
0: Was it the game or the personality? Why did everybody like this guy?
3: You know, both, because uh, the show had existed before Bob Barker. There was another host previous, and it had never really broken through. So you have to give Barker some credit. He Absolutely, people responded to him. Uh, he was such a kind of a father figure on TV, but he had a sense of humor about himself. Uh, he often it would relate to the people playing the game, and he just was such a pro, right? And so people loved him.
0: He was very smooth, very, very, uh, very even keel.
3: He was. and In fact, I got to meet him in 1986. I was living in L.A., working for TV Guide Canada, my parents came down to visit, and TV Guide Canada had put Bob Barker on the cover. So my mom, of course, really wanted to see a taping of The Price is Right. So we go to Television <laughs> City in L.A., and I gave them my parents both the covers uh, of the magazine with Bob Barker on it. So they're sitting there in the front row waving this, and when the show starts, Barker walks out, and he sees them, and he walks right to them, and he goes... Ross and Mark, because they're wearing those yellow name tags. <laughs> uh, what, have, what have you got there? And they got to have their little moment on TV on The Price is Right with Bob Barker.
0: Wow, that's a great story. So give us some history here. I'm old enough to remember very vaguely a show called Truth or Consequences.
3: Yes, yeah, me too. And uh, it was a show that was on in the daytime like uh, The Price is Right. Uh, people had to... It was sort of like truth or dare kind of thing. And it was sort of uh, people had to do stunts as well as give answers to questions. Mm -hmm. Barker was the host of this uh, back as early as, I think, 1956. Uh, And uh, that was a show that was still on the air when you and I were uh, young
6: lads.
0: Uh, Always an animal activist. Always kind of wove that into the show. Uh, Get your your pet spayed or neutered.
3: Yeah. Um Drew Cherry told me a funny story once. I was on the set and he said that when he started doing the show, he had promised Bob Barker he would keep saying, Get your pets spayed or neutered. But it was a Mother's Day show and they had an audience full of expectant mothers. And he said, Well, you want to salute all the expectant mothers who are here today and remember to get your pets spayed or neutered. You know <laughs> he, he, he thought later, Well, maybe that wasn't the right message. Um But, you know, Scott, there's a story he helped. He was so serious about animals and uh, protection that he paid a million dollars donated to have three elephants um, transported from the Toronto Zoo.
0: I remember this.
3: I remember this. Yeah. It wasn't just a lark for him. He really meant it. In fact, he used to give away fur coats on the show, and he told the producers, not with me in charge. You're not doing this anymore. And they stopped.
0: He certainly was there and saw a lot of changes in television over his career.
3: Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, from black and white to color and uh, you know, he, he did it so long, but I think he is, he got such a boost from the movie, happy Gilmore. You know, when he did that with Adam Sandler, it was such a funny scene with the two of them fist fighting on the golf course. (laughs) And then Years later, you know, there was another follow-up to that where he was in a hospital and Sandler goes to visit him. He's so old. And then they have another big, fast fight. Barker's, like, dumping a bedpan on Sandler's head. And it was just so outrageous and funny that a whole other generation got to know Bob Barker.
0: Bill Brio with his TV critic and author, talking about the life and times of Bob Barker, Price is Right game show host and uh, occasional movie star passing away at the age of 99. Bill, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve
4: into the issue until he
0: is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. um, You know, I've, I've sort of made this decision that I'm not going to talk about this unless something happens and and i guess uh setting a trial date uh, for donald trump is is something happening uh, march 4th 2024 is when uh, the election interference trial is set uh and and this obviously ahead of the election campaign donald trump wants this all delayed till after the election campaign and the judge said no we don't do that kind of thing It's not about your schedule. Uh, Let's bring in Brian J. Kram, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy, political analyst for CNN. Here now, Brian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well.
1: I'm doing well. How about yourself, brother?
0: So far, so good. So March 4th, 2024. Is this now set in stone, Brian, or could this change?
1: Well, that's when it, no, it's pretty well set in whatever stone you can set Hmm. it in. Uh, And that will be the beginning arguments that will be, I mean, I'm sorry, that will be voir they'll they'll try to pick a jury they'll have opening motions so um you know i would imagine that after the voir dire and after the opening motions we may see um the presentation of evidence within a couple of weeks so by the end of march we'll be heavily into that and uh poor o'donnie will have to just wait it out in court
0: so, uh, obviously, this uh, they asked the judge to delay this, uh, citing the, uh, you know, till after the election and mountains and mountains of information to go through. Clearly, judge not buying that.
1: Well, you, it's kind of tough for the judge to buy that when the when the former president's own attorney was on TV the very the previous day saying, look, he knows the truth. This isn't that difficult of a case. You know, he'll come out and testify. And, you know, that kind of destroys the whole idea behind you needing more time. Because you have to go through all these records when your own attorney is saying, no, it's a pretty simple case. So, yeah, I I don't, you know, the Donald Trump wanted it postponed almost indefinitely till 2026. And the uh, prosecution wanted it to take place in January. And the judge, I think, struck a very, you know, uh, responsible pose and said, look, we're not going to do it in January. You you do need some time to prepare, but we're going to begin in March. And we're not going to wait till March of 2026. That's ridiculous. And as she said, you know, our, we don't. that's not the way we do things around here. We, we don't bend to what you want to do. You, you have to show up in court because you're an accused uh, felon. So that's that's how that works.
0: How does this affect the campaign then with the timing of this?
1: Well, it does happen right before Super Tuesday. Look, I've always said that I don't believe Donald Trump will be on the ballot uh November of 2024. Anyway, I mean, there's too many things he's got going on, and he's just not going to be able to maintain the posture that he has, but he's gonna grift up until the very end to try and get as much money as he's as is possible to pay his mounting and luminary, I mean, looming fees. Uh so I I think he'll it, it's gonna it will definitely affect his campaign, but we've seen with the first Republican primary that there are plenty of other people untethered to reality that could fill his rather large clown shoes and <laughs> continue the grift.
0: Um, it, it, does Donald Trump have a lawyer that he's held or had with him for years? It seems like he goes through lawyers like, um, yeah,
1: <laughs> pick, pick like your you analogy through a goose. Yeah. Yeah. He changes, exactly. he changes lawyers like other people change their underwear, you know, mm. daily. Um, but yeah, he had one like that, but, uh, where did that guy end up? Michael Cohen, you know, I helped write a book yeah. with him. He ended up in prison because he, he, you know, was tethered to the Don so closely. So no other, I mean, that was a warning a shot across the bow for all attorneys, not to get that close to Donnie. Cause he's going to throw you under the bus
0: uh obviously many have said that uh, the donald is own worst enemy and just things that he says and in ways he incriminates himself what about his babbling in front of a camera or babbling on social media uh well these trials or or this is all in front of a judge i mean how's that going to fly
1: well i think if if you're the prosecutor you just go let him go because he'll incriminate himself and make my job that much easier but in reality what he's doing is trying to grift and get money from his base, and um, they continue right now to support him. And in fact, the polls show that among uh, Republican voters, he's still very popular, and that is going to remain the same, I think, until you know. Much as the case with the uh, with the hearings on Watergate, once this is on television, once the Georgia trial takes place, and we can see and hear testimony. Then that is going to be a deciding factor for many of folk, and I don't believe that Donnie and the big and that tale of the tape starts in October with a couple of hearings from uh, in Georgia with some of the defendants who won a real quick and speedy trial. You're going to see, e- even this week, in some of the attempts to move Mark Meadows' case from uh, Georgia to the uh, federal court system. You're going to see a, a preamble or uh, of what's going to happen. In court, and that could can, that might change people's minds because some of the most damning testimony, of course, is from Georgia, where you had a Chicago reverend drive mm-hmm. down to Georgia to try and intimidate two uh, workers, poll workers, and then you actually had members of Trump's team trying to break into, um, you know, voting machines. All of that, when that comes out on television, is going to be very damning for Donald Trump.
0: So uh, the first, is this really going to start rolling in October, or will it have to wait till March?
1: Well, uh, that well, that one. There are two people who want to have their. This is the you know. God, there's so many cases we have to yeah. separate them up. Four, four different jurisdictions, four different grand juries, 91 felony charges against Donnie. Uh, this the one that we're talking about that's in March is the one the federal case uh, right. brought by Jack Smith uh, about uh, the January 6th. Um, insurrection the one that in Georgia is the one that will probably be on camera because you don't have federal court proceedings on camera live but you do in the state of Georgia so there are two members that of the 18 or 19 that are uh tra- are being tried with Donald Trump that have asked for a speedy trial and that will happen in 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 October however today and this week you've got uh Mark Meadows in court trying to separate himself from that herd and move his case along with one other into a federal court instead of a state court. So you're going to get get a glimpse of what that trial is going to be like, and the evidence against Donald this week beginning today, including you know the the <laughs> including the revelation that while he wants to separate himself, Mark Meadows wants to separate himself. He's also saying that you know everything he did was political, so he can't. That kind of you know speaks against his desire to have his case moved to federal court because he believes he was acting in his job so it's all complicated and convoluted but we're going to start seeing this stuff fall out almost immediately
0: brian j karam with us, journalist author white house correspondent for playboy political analyst for cnn the ongoing saga that is donald trump brian as always (laughs) thanks for the time we'll chat again be well have fun don't go away we're coming right back you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Over the weekend, a community meeting held in the North End to discuss the future of the HATS tiny cabins and uh, encampment solutions and such. You might remember uh, the community in the area of the Unistation Station where the, the train yards are. Uh, was not on the initial list, so residents surprised that they weren't consulted with any of this. There was other locations that somehow didn't work or for some reason didn't work, and uh, residents are upset that they weren't involved in this situation before uh, decisions were made. Let's bring in Ted McMeekin, and Councillor Ward 15, City of Hamilton, and with us now. Ted, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, sir. Thank you. So uh, let's talk about this location, and, and you know because there's lots of uh, lots of heated different opinions going on here. Uh, why was this location chosen when it wasn't on the initial uh, uh, list of locations that that uh, that were to be talked about? It seems that the people weren't aware, the residents not aware that this was going on. Why was this? Why was this not on the uh, initial locations uh, list of initial lo- locations?
5: well I, I it's a difficult question to answer the city council asked uh, planning staff uh, to uh, explore a number of sites uh, they weren't necessarily listed as we left it pretty wide open um, because of um, you know a lot of a lot of community reaction There, seemingly wherever the site was the, the thinking uh, on the part of council i I, I believe was uh, Let's have the staff come back with a site and uh, make some determination about what that site uh, uh, should be. And uh, then we'll go through the process of talking with uh, neighbors and others about uh, what uh, implications uh, that has and uh, what sort of things need to be put in place to make sure that the project is uh, is successful. So it wasn't a... Uh, a uh, political decision from council, as much as it was a, a staff uh, planning recommendation. Uh,
0: so, where is this now? Where at, at what proce- at what, at what part of the process are we are we in right now?
5: Well, I want to compliment the uh, local councilor for uh, braving calling the meeting, and uh, and uh, it was well attended. I was there. Uh, Uh, A lot of fear, I think, about uh, uh, the issue of homelessness generally. And that's related to uh, some of the issues around uh, mental health, uh, which is scary for some, and uh, addiction uh, stuff. Uh, About one in four of our currently homeless uh, folk have uh, some kind of mental health or addiction problem. Many are, uh, the other three quarters are people who are just hard down on their luck. Maybe a marriage has fallen apart or or mortgage payments couldn't be made and they're homeless. Uh, So where the site is now, there's a second meeting that's been called uh, uh, by the um, Councillor and will engage uh, some uh, of the uh, Hamilton staff and and others uh, around uh, the HATS model um, and give the HATS folk uh, uh, another opportunity to explain as best they can uh, what their hopes and dreams are for assisting our homeless community, and uh, and that will be held, I think, September 11th, and uh, we'll go from there. I think I think the, the idea is that, uh, assuming this site goes forward, I think it will, uh, there'll be a community coordinating uh, a group that will work with HATS and with the local council and the city uh, to make sure that uh, it has every uh, opportunity to succeed.
0: So it does look like this is going to actually happen. This is going to go through.
5: Looks like looks like this is the site. And, uh, you know, HATS was in an awkward position because not all of the uh, requirements that they listed uh, uh, were uh, met by this site, uh, but others were. And, uh, you know, winter's coming. They're anxious. Uh, this uh, community group, uh, uh, by the way, nobody's paid to do any of this work. They raised uh you know over half a million dollars and trained over a hundred volunteers the, the police chief and uh, other other people uh who will, will be providing incredible support to wherever the site is are are seemingly on site. and uh so we want to make sure it, it uh when it gets up it works by the way, just as an aside uh, in Kitchener, where the Betty Tent city took off and this this uh, hats is modeled on that. There was the same kind of opposition. Uh, nobody knew what they were getting into. And finally, when it was set up and uh, was allowed to operate, uh, it was so successful that it was named um, uh, by the Kitchener community, the Community Development Project of the Year. And Waterloo Region decided it was so successful that they would replicate the model with a second 50-cabin uh, site on Herb Road. Uh, and $5 million uh, on municipal property with $5 million over three years in support. So the hope is given a chance HATS will be successful and a number of uh, unhoused homeless people will have an opportunity to uh, live in the context of community, get some of the support help that they need, Scott, and and that it will work and it will be uh, an important part of uh, Hamilton's overall strategy.
0: We all want to do the right thing and and help those that that need the hand up and such. But I think yep. ted, what 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 a lot of people are cranky at about here is that we're behind on this. we we're We're very much behind from planners. Who, who just haven't done the right thing who haven't planned we all knew this was going to happen we've been talking about a housing shortage 5 10 15 20 years uh, prior to the pandemic and now we've got band-aids and piecemeal situations and people living in tents and when you ask the politician about it well you know we got to do the right thing well we all know we have to do the right thing but many are asking why the heck this wasn't done years ago how did we get into such a housing shortage whether it's a Affordable housing, whether it's people who are uh, in need living in a tent city, or whether it's the young couple who've done anything right but still can't imagine, uh, can't manage to get into a home. How do we correct the mistakes and start correcting uh, the the shortfalls that that started years ago?
5: Well, let's be clear Uh, it should have happened years ago. It didn't. Uh, There has been a cumulative uh, lack of. uh, uh, responsiveness uh, over the years. So We're trying to catch up. All, all senior levels of government have cut balls up in the air. I remember the federal election. One party was going to build a million new homes. and The next day, the, another party would announce 1.5 million homes. On and on and on and on and on. The reality is we need a little bit of imagination. Up in Waterloo Region, for example, Hamilton Habitat for Humanity, working with uh, some political people, planners up there, NGOs, Uh, and uh, a number of developers who have agreed to build uh, 10,000 housing and rental units uh, at cost and make no money on the building, uh, plan to uh, succeed within the next uh, two years in building 10,000 housing units. So one of the questions I asked the council, the last council meeting after sending uh, uh, the articles uh, that appeared in the Waterloo record paper to all the counselors and senior staff people, was uh you know can we do the same kind of thing uh, we've we've got Developers with a heart. You've got a but again,
0: Ted, with all due respect, you're a housing minister during the wind government. How did this happen? Like this, we've known about this, and I've had experts on the air talking about this for yep. years. And all we talk about is affordable housing, of which housing isn't affordable for anybody. We all know if the middle cra- middle class is struggling, <laughs> those trying to make the middle class are, are, are going to feel the brunt. But but again, it's like it's.
5: Let me give it to you straight. Uh, the the win government. Uh, enhanced uh, funding for purpose-built housing by over 600%, and also leveraged uh, the national housing policy, uh, which ostensibly has $7.8 billion available to assist with the issue. It's a matter of developing a shared sense of purpose where all levels of government can come together. Um, As Hazel McCallion used to say, the feds have all the money, the provinces has all the power, the municipalities have or are about to have all the problems.
0: Ted, I'm going to have to let you go. I'm plumb out of time, and uh, fair, I felt like enough. I've been talking around in circles like a merry-go-round. At the end of the day, we have not billed enough, and we have to do more. We have to learn something about this terrible mistake that we have made over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Ted McMeegan with us, Councillor Ward 15, City of Hamilton. All right. Uh, if we're not building, we're going on strike. Workers at a trio of major automakers have voted overwhelmingly in favor of a strike. We're going to talk to Stephen Lecce in regard to the teachers uh, coming up after the five o'clock news. Now let's talk to Dr. Ian Lee, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, about what is happening in the automotive industry. He is here now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well. Thank you, Scott. Seems everybody's going on strike, Ian.
7: Yeah. Uh, You know, Scott, this really reminds me. And uh, (laughs) as I'm older, uh, it really does. It really, it's deja vu all over again in the mid late Hmm. seventies the inflation under Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And he was the prime minister. I'm not, that's why I named him. um, That's a reality. And uh, inflation went from four to five to seven and so on. Why, where am I going with this story? Well, in that there were, there were, there were all kinds of strikes. In fact, it got so bad the then Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau uh, introduced a law, a bill that became a law called six and five that regulated um, wages and prices to 6% in the first year, 5% in the second year, because they were trying to get a handle on it. And and. Uh, and everything they were doing was a Band-Aid, which was like you were talking about a moment ago on the housing crisis. Well, with the the attempt to control inflation, they were just doing Band-Aids and PR and press conferences. And, and it didn't work. That's my point. And, and so there were more and more strikes. If I'm not mistaken, that period that I'm referring to in that mid-70s, late mid-late 70s, we had more strikes than ever before or since. And uh, it was because inflation was just going through the roof. And it wasn't until uh, Governor Bowie of the Bank of Canada and uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Volcker said, look, we're gonna get serious, and they did. They got really serious and it really hurt like hell. And they drove interest rates all the way to 20%, created a huge, huge recession. Uh, the worst since the Great Depression in terms of the loss of jobs and the and the drop in GDP. But, but, they killed inflation for a third of a century. And so why I'm coming back to that analogy is these strikes are not going away, Scott. They're responding understandably. I'm not trashing the unions. I'm saying they're they're saying, look, uh, the prices are going up, food, five, six mm-hmm. percent, whatever. And uh, and and we need to be protected. And the government is, and I'm not advocating wage and price controls whatsoever because they were a failure then. But the government has got to get a hold of uh, 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 of inflation and drive it back down into that 2% range as fast as possible. And they can start by stopping to inflate the economy, as they're doing right now, with $50 billion deficit, which is pure and it's stimulative. That's what a deficit is. It's stimulating. They're stimulating the inflation, which just strikes me as, as crazy.
0: Do you see this, uh, is is this going to be the, the norm for the next year? We're just going to see one after another, after another, after another.
7: I think so. Uh, I, I think so, because what will bring it to an end, of course, is inflation dropping down precipitously. And uh, the, so there's going to be, you know, one union sees, uh, or a bunch of unions see one union go on strike, and they get a very attractive settlement. They won't get what yeah. they asked for, but they'll get a lot more than 2%. And so the next, all that does is incentivize other unions that are coming up for collective bargaining because their contract has come to an end and say, hey, look, those guys went out, you know, and they got, you know, maybe 15% over three years um, or maybe they got 18 or 19%. So it, 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 it's, it's no lose for the, for the unions because they can't go to their own members and just and say, uh, because remember, union presidents and vice presidents are elected and they can't go to their own workers and say, suck it up, guys. Uh, mm-hmm. The government's working on this file they've got to be seen to their members that that they're working on their behalf. So that's going to make them more militant on this. And and there's lots of ammunition for them to be a militant because the inflation has not been addressed or solved. And so the, the, uh, I mean, the government, forgive me for saying this, Scott, but uh, I've been saying this for four years when Mr. Trudeau stood up at the microphones in March, April, May of 2020, we will spend no matter what it takes. And I was screaming at my television, no, 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 don't do that. All you're doing is pumping enormous amounts of stimulus into the system and the chickens will come home to roost and bite us in the backside. And they did. did. And I'm not saying it caused the inflation. That was blowing up the supply chains with the lockdowns. But this made it much worse. And for those who say, ah, that's just your opinion, Milton Friedman won a Nobel Prize at the University of Chicago for showing the impact of stimulus of government excess spending on inflation. And we are reaping the wind, unfortunately. And now it's coming back to bite his government. It's hurting him very badly because they haven't solved the inflation problem.
0: Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Spratt School of Business, Carleton University, Auto Industry, now talking strike. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, thanks. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton. Today with Scott Thompson.
1: On Hamilton's News, today's talk 900 CXML.
0: Let's bring in Stephen Lecce, Education Minister. Lots to talk about, not only with the situation. uh, You might remember last week we were talking about uh, a tentative deal being set with the Ontario high school teachers. Uh, If they don't get something uh, done, then uh, it goes to binding arbitration. Other uh, three unions not as excited about that deal. Uh, Let's bring in the Education Minister, Stephen Lecce. He is here now. Stephen, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks so much, Tom. Good to be back. All right. So, Stephen, I want to ask you right uh, right off the top here, because we got a situation. We've talked about this before. Uh, the teacher in Halton uh, at Oakville Trafalgar that was uh, wearing the uh, giant prosthetic breasts and the problems that that caused and the whatever. You, you, we know right. all of that over the course of time. Obviously, it kind of died down. Now we're hearing that that teacher uh, may be making an appearance at the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. Is that accurate? What do we know?
6: Well, I mean, I I wouldn't know uh, the school board as the employer would be able to confirm or deny that. I know they put out some communications uh, with respect to one school. What I can simply say is, you know, uh, the school board is the employer. The ministry is not. And they're the ones who hire and fire individuals. But I can tell you this, and it's a clear expectation I've set out, and I'm going to reaffirm it today for the people of Hamilton. I have the highest expectations when it comes to professional standards. Educators are in front of impressionable young kids. I expect, I demand that our staff, whoever you are in front of kids, maintains high professional standards. You demonstrate good judgment, sound judgment. And so uh, that is the expectation I'm setting out. I will hold school boards and directors of education accountable. They must uphold that principle. I don't want to see distractions. I don't want to see uh real threats to the safety of schools that came as a consequence we need our administration school boards to uphold the welfare and ch- uh, rights of children to live in safety in their school and so i expect that i will reaffirm that today and obviously i will remain um, uh, i will reiterate to families that we just passed a law in the province Bill ninety eight, the Better Schools and Soon Outcomes Act, that actually creates new binding requirements on school boards to get back to basics, to focus on focus on academic achievements, and there's now some some new accountability measures for school boards to ensure they do that. So I guess my point simply is that's what I expect. I think any reasonable, common sense person out there would agree, um, and let's certainly hope and I uh, to see that being upheld in Hamilton and frankly across Ontario
0: uh and again i don't want to dwell on this but it certainly looks like you know what was halton's problem is now hamilton's problem this is just past the problem you can understand how parents would be very frustrated that there's no solution here it's just you know uh going on, yeah. going out another doorway
6: yeah i think i think parents you know look you know we're an amazing province an inclusive place uh we welcome people from every walk of life but we also expect professional standards and that's the basic like this is the fundamental requirement to be in front of a child use sound judgment, uh, and demonstrate high standards of professionalism. And I want to believe the directors of education and the leadership of school boards will make sure that that is upheld. And so we will hold them to account um, so that we don't have the circumstances we had in other communities afflict those in Hamilton. Uh, I want kids in Hamilton to focus on learning, to be uh, really zeroing in on reading, writing, and math and STEM education. That's what's going to matter. That's what's going to help these kids get back on track after years of instability. And frankly, staying in school in the first principle, keeping them in a, uh, in a stable environment, plus the, the additional investments in reading, writing, and math, all these changes, the accountability on school boards. I mean, it's some good stuff I'm looking forward to. I think families can look forward to for September, but it, it all rests upon the ability of keeping kids in school and keeping them focused on academics.
0: All right, we heard last week uh, a deal, tentative deal, with uh, the Ontario secondary uh, schools, uh, teachers, rather, and and it looked good and such. And then uh, over the course of the weekend, we're hearing from the other ones that um, they don't sound very positive at all, that uh, this isn't going to work for them, that binding arbitration uh, removes key issues or shows that key issues will not be addressed. How can it be so different from one to the others?
6: Well, I mean, first off, we achieved something really amazing. We, we've been able to sign a tentative agreement with the high school public teachers. I mean, it still has to be ratified by the members, but the provincial and local executives have uh, supported it, strongly supported it. What that means is for a child who started school, a high school kid in grade nine last September, this plan will enable them to graduate in the next three years without any threat of a strike provincially or locally. I mean, honestly, that is... Um, what an amazing, positive legacy we can leave these kids to give them peace and stability and some sense of hope that they could focus on academic achievement. And so we owe it to them. And so we've offered this to OSSDF. They've accepted it on an attentive basis. We appreciate that. And I've called in the other unions to say, look, this has been a fair system. We're going to keep negotiating till October 27th. We're going to work hard at the table. We're going to double down. We'll add more days. We'll do everything necessary to bargain. But any outstanding issues, whatever they may be, there may be one, there may be many. They get sent to binding interest arbitration who's a fair third party of the way the arbitrator, all parties. We do this in every sector of the economy. It's clearly there's tons of precedent. It's reasonable for all parties. And it's frankly fair for the parties. But the greatest victory here are the children who get to stay in school. And I'm imploring them to be the adults in the room to come to the table with a proposal that protects in-person learning. Nothing should matter more. And the threat of strikes that I heard just last week, these new strike votes they're holding in September, October. I think it, mm-hmm. it really set back that momentum. I think it created anxiety for a lot of parents, and I think a lot of kids were had a sense of, you know, just a sense of depression. Like, do we have to go through this again? You know, do we really need to do this every year in Ontario? So I believe uh, we have to put the interests of kids first. The proposal we brought forth is fair, sensible. And it keeps them in school. And I'm just urging the Catholic and French and public elementary uh, unions to come to the table, work with the government, put the interests of kids first. Let's get this deal done for the stability of your members, for our educators who are good people who work in our schools, and for the parents who are, you know, working so hard right now to make ends meet and support their kids. Let's give them all the stability they deserve.
0: I like the analogy of a kid that starts in grade nine. Now will get all the way through without the threat of the strike. Think about that. <laughs> that's rarely happened. That's great. Oh,
6: it, it, like, I mean, I, I can't remember the last time that's happened. Yeah. It feels like it's been a generation. So, you know, and this isn't hypothetical anymore. You know, honestly, this is now, this is real. If this gets ratified by their members. That will be the case for three straight additional years, plus the final, the last year. So it's four years in total, you know, and this is being See- supported by, you know, the fact that we're hiring 2,000 more of their educators, 2,000 more specialized educators focused on literacy and math. We've got a new curriculum uh, focused on life and job skills. We're introducing cursive writing, bringing back phonics, mandatory financial literacy, coding. I mean, life skills, things that help these kids succeed. Personal budgeting, emphasizing personal responsibility, mental health supports, and, and working to counter vaping. Like, this is good stuff. But it doesn't matter fundamentally if they're not in school. And so my first priority Mm as minister on behalf of the people of this province is to make clear we will do everything possible to get the parties to the table to agree. I appreciate the early days. I know we just made the announcement and emotions may be high, but let's just extend the olive branch, put kids first, demonstrate a sense of focus on the welfare of kids. If we do that, then the kids will be back in school. They're gonna stay in school and they're gonna get back on track on those fundamental skills. And I remain Quite optimistic that we can really improve outcomes in schools. We can help lift up the standards of reading, writing, and math and STEM education. And when I talk to parents, literally everywhere, including of course for you know many families in Hamilton, I was just speaking to dear uh, friend Donna Scully. I was just speaking to um, you know uh, Neil Lumsden uh, just a couple of days ago. I saw both of them and spoke to Donna last night, and they're telling me the same thing. Parents want their educators and their schools to focus on academic hmm. achievement. And so now, finally, because of their strong advocacy, we are literally imposing new binding um, accountability on school boards to get their uh, to lift their standards and get their act together with respect to student achievement, higher graduation rates, higher participation in math and science courses, higher rate of uh, yeah. lower rates of absenteeism. This stuff matters. And so I'm really, you know, frankly, honored to work with both of them, with Donna and Neil, and the premier and the entire government, because- this is critical to the life of children. And we're just just—we're going to keep standing up for the right of kids to be in school, to stay in school, and to get back to the basics of education.
0: Stephen Lecce, Minister of Education, province of Ontario, trying to get the kids into school in September. Stephen, thanks for the time. Be well.
6: Thank you. Have a good day.
0: We've talked about this problem. We mentioned it with the uh, Education Minister, Stephen Lecce, uh, just moments ago. And maybe this will surprise you, maybe not. But you remember the teacher we were talking about, About last year in Halton, who uh, I believe the name is Kayla Lemieux, who was uh, the focus of attention, a lot of media attention uh, when they were wearing prosthetic, giant prosthetic breasts to to school. This wasn't it's not a transgender issue. The issue is uh, dress, one of dress code and one of behavior and such in regard to the clothing and the attire that this teacher was wearing now in a letter to parents and uh we've got someone who's just sent us a copy of the late uh, a letter as well from uh the principal from a parent whose kid goes to this school uh the principal tom fisher writes we are writing you today because we anticipate the school your child is attending this year nora francis henderson may receive some level of public attention and we want to communicate what this means for you your children and the school Joel uh, Warmington and the Sun didn't name the person specifically, but did uh, tell parents a teacher is an an experienced educator who was recently the subject of public attention pertaining to their gender expression while teaching in a different community. Uh, it seems that was once Halton's problem is now Hamilton's problem as that has been passed along. Let's bring in Larry Deany with his principal hat on, uh, former principal at uh, uh, Oakville Trafalgar High School and former mayor of Hamilton. And with us now, Larry. Thanks for thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
8: I am well, Scott. Um, always a pleasure.
0: Are you surprised, Larry, that this has pr- this has happened again, but in another board, and now this teacher is coming to Hamilton?
8: yeah, I, I am. Um, uh, presumably, um, this uh, teacher has had to be hired by Hamilton to be on in the Hamilton system. and um, and uh, so uh, the uh, uh, the school board um, and the hiring process would have uh, gone through the person's record uh, and would have known about the controversy. Obviously, clearly, they do if the principal wrote a letter such as he did. Uh, which is a good idea, by the way, but I'll get to that in a second, uh, and um, and would know the problems that have arisen in, uh, in the previous school. And so they think they can manage it, obviously, uh, because they've hired the person into the system. But, uh, you know, if past this prologue, uh, we've seen this movie before, and there are likely to be some distractions and some issues. I hope not, but uh, there are likely to be.
0: All right, I, I, I can understand Halton being in a situation where all of a sudden this this issue is presented to them, and then now they had to react to it or react in some way, whatever way that was. We still don't really don't know what happened, but now, as you said, this board now has to hire uh, th- this person as if it's just if it's a, as if it's any other employee. So uh, you know, having something like this come up is one thing, but to go looking for it. Or, or, or to, to think. Well, what's the problem here? We can manage this. How do you get to that place?
8: Well, so let, let's let's assume that they did do their job and due diligence and made um, a hiring decision uh, based on the needs in the school. And I understand from uh, the if this is the same person, I understand from the previous. Uh, uh, work that she was doing uh, in, uh, in Oakville. It's a very specialized field where there aren't as many people in that field uh, and many teachers as there might be. So, so there was obviously a need that they needed to fill in terms of curricular um, um, obligation. Um, so they, they hired with their eyes wide open and they think they can manage uh, the, the, the situation. Uh, the the problem though is this, uh, in my estimation, my humble estimation, and, and let me also say that everybody deserves to be given a chance to earn a living, and this person obviously uh, has a profession and needs to and needs to earn a living as well. But the primary obligation of a school is to teach students. The primary obligation of a school principal is to make sure that the teachers in the school receive their resources. And receive everything that they need in order to teach those students that come to their uh, classroom every single day. The obligation of the school board is to hire staff that can fill can fulfill all of those obligations. It's always a problem when you hire someone. And listen, I, I've, I've hired many people over my career, and mostly, in fact, almost exclusively, very good hires. But occasionally you run into performance issues, and there are distractions which take you away from your obligation and your mission, which is to teach kids. And so my concern would be, if I were a parent now having received this letter, is there is there going to be a distraction in this school uh, that will prevent my child from learning to the fullest of his or her ability? And if there is, if that turns out to be the case as it was in a major way in Oakville, if that's the case, then did the school board make a wise choice? Understanding that everybody deserves to have a a job and everybody deserves to earn a living, and this person is probably skilled in terms of the technical aspects of the job, but has been party to a very, very distracting sort of which could not have been easy on her either. By the way, mm. uh, a very, uh, very much a distraction uh, in uh, the previous employment. So I'm, I'm hoping that the school board understands all that and has made the, the right choice, and things will work out for those kids and everybody concerned.
0: Uh, and again, there's no reason to think it won't, Larry, because look what happened in Halton. And of course, I'm saying that with my tongue firmly planted uh, in my cheek. To me, this is just asking for controversy. What's the win? Where's the win for the school? And I guess, OK, may, is this the only person that can teach shop? I mean, I know there's a shortage of everything, but come on. But what's the win for the, for the school? What's the win for the kids? I see a win for the teacher, but that's it.
8: Yeah, but and, and maybe even the teacher, if if uh, you know the situation uh, develops the way it did in Oakville, it'll not be a, it'll not be a bed of roses for anybody concerned. But again, I come back to the primary objective of a school and a school board, which is to teach kids. Mm. And so, the moment you you do something that distracts from that sacred mission, and it is a sacred mission. The education of children. The moment you do anything that distracts from that, you have not done your job. So now that's speculation because nothing has happened. The principal, I think the principal was wise in writing the letter to the parents because they would have found out right away. Um, and and so informing people at least gives them some transparency as to what's happening. And I think the principal wise was wise to do that. But, you know, it's a question of crossing your fingers and hoping for the best, I think. And I, I certainly wish everybody good luck. But you're right. Um, you, you know, if, if you've given various choices, uh, it may not have been the best choice.
0: Larry DeAnne with us, former mayor for the city of Hamilton, former teacher at Oakville, or former principal at Oakville Trafalgar High School, speaking on the teacher which uh, was now, or was in Halton and now possibly on the way to Hamilton. Larry, as always, thanks for the time, delicate issue, be well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpayer and customer to have the last word this last word comes from mr low in light of yet another tragic mass shoot- shooting this weekend in florida the most compelling words came from yolanda renee king granddaughter of the late martin luther king who said the dream has yet to be fulfilled mr low